But when I really, when I really think about the things that were said about our fellowship, how rich it is that we are making an impact and a difference in the hearts and in the lives of children. We're making an impact in the hearts and the lives of so, so many families in our community. And it really is just very, very encouraging to see and to be a part of a fellowship that understands what it means to be involved. And there's not a reticence of interaction with those who may not know the Lord, who may have very different views on a lot of important things, but we rub elbows and we love and we do it in the name of Christ and it is for his name's sake. And what I love, you know, we talked last week and we'll look again at the church at Ephesus a little bit. But I think of the church of Ephesus as the emotionless church. Emotionless. But something very unique about them, they had a lot of motion, but no emotion. So lots of motion, but no emotion. That's not the case with Hillside. There's lots of motion, but it's tagged with and begins with emotion. And it's the love of God that compels us. And so... Uh, very thrilled uh, just to be a part, very thrilled to uh, get to co-labor together in the kingdom of God with such marvelous people who allow the love of Christ to flow through you. And it really is. It's amazing. So look at your neighbor and say, hey, thanks for that sloppy agape. (laughs) Albeit it's not really sloppy agape, right? (laughs) Um, well, let's dive in. I feel uh, I'm, I'm compelled because of my familiarity, and I don't, I don't ever want to take familiarity for granted or uh, neglect to... <laughs> nice hat, Wesley. Thank you. That was cute. Uh, I don't want to uh, take my familiarity with this portion of scripture because of the amount of time that I have spent in this particular area and studying and uh, actually years and years of study, uh, I, will, I will say that my, my study of the book of Revelation really is a 30 year study and a 30, probably a 32 year study and a 32 year love relationship with the revelation of Jesus Christ and uh, I remember Richard and I share a little bit some Wednesday mornings because we are familiar with one commentator uh, who was a turn-of-the-century commentator, Clarence Larkin, and he wrote a commentary on the book of Revelation as well as the book of Daniel. And uh, I have both copies of that. And I remember early on just studying and studying and studying Clarence Larkin. If you have seen any diagrams of the book of Revelation, uh, any kind of timelines that were drawn with pictures and circles and all kinds of things. Those were drawings that were done by a man named Clarence Larkin who was a theologian, but he was also a architect and draftsman. And so he, all of his drawings uh, were very meticulous. And uh, in fact, I actually have a copy of one of them. Uh, he, he does things like this, and so he just fills in all the blanks and uh, some quality, quality stuff. I remember when I was first, uh, first born again, they used to have a Friday night movie at the church. Every Friday night they had a movie at the church I attended. And I'll, I'll not forget, because one of the first movies I saw was a movie called A Thief in the Night. How many of you remember that movie from like the 70s, right? I mean, cheesy 70s uh, rapture movie and uh, revelation movie. But in that movie, uh, there was a pastor who did not get taken up in the rapture. And there was uh, someone who asked why he was left behind. It was a child, if I remember right, why he was left behind and. I remember he opened like this, he was hiding in a barn, and he opened up this barn door, and he kind of slid it out, and it was this mural. 
It was from floor to ceiling, side to side, and it was the it was a color image of Clarence Larkin's full picture of the Book of Revelation from the seven seals to the seven trumpets to the seven vials all the way to the thousand year uh, sealing of Satan in the abyss and the thousand year reign of Christ all the way up to the new heavens and the new Jerusalem, the great white throne judgment, the new heavens, the new Jerusalem and so forth and so on. And he explained how he had missed the boat because he had stopped preaching the gospel and he went through his whole story, how he had fallen away. And uh, anyway, it, when I, I remember seeing that, you know, here I was 19 years old and I was like, wow, that's amazing. I got to get my hands on something like that. And then I got that commentary from one of my football player friends who had gotten saved. I mean, he, he had been saved. He was the one who saw me that one uh, Sunday evening. And uh, he gave me a copy of it. And I remember going through and then I saw that same diagram in the book. And I thought, ah. Oh. And so I made it just a passion of mine to study the uh, book of Revelation. So that being said, I never want to... Uh, neglect for those who may be coming into the study, who may have missed. Uh, so I do want to review. I guess is what I'm saying. I'm reviewing that I want to review. How's that go? <laughs> How's that sound? Uh, so by way of reminder, the book of Revelation is a book, and it's the only book of the 66 books that comes with a blessing. Blessing. And the blessing is to those who read, who hear, and who keep all of the words of the prophecy that are contained. It also is the book of all 66 books that is unique and that it comes with a divine outline. The divine outline found in Revelation chapter 1 verse 19. John was instructed to write the things that he had seen, the things that are, and the things that will take place after this or after these things which is the Greek word metatauta, and it is a key word. We'll see that transition in chapter 4. Chapter 4 begins with those words in the Greek, metatauta, or after these things, okay? So we'll see that, but we see the breakdown. We see chapter 1 is the things which John had seen. He records what he had seen. What did he see? He saw the resurrected, living glorified Jesus Christ. And he gives us a description. And the things that are is the next section. The things that are are chapters 2 and 3. Chapters 2 and 3 are seven letters to seven churches of Asia Minor or Proconsul Turkey area, if you will, Proconsul Asia. And these seven letters... There are four different types of application we can make with these. The first would be a particular or particularly applied to the local church that the letter was being written to. So very real church in Ephesus that Paul established in Ephesians in Acts chapter 19 and Acts chapter 20. We can you, you can read that. We might even touch on that briefly tonight. But Paul established that church, a very real church. It's now been nearly 35 to 40 years since the establishment of that church in around 55, 52 to 55 AD. And they now have some stuff going on. And so Jesus is going to address that very particular church and the things that are associated with that church. The second application. (laughs) The second application We go from the particular to the panoramic. The panoramic is these letters, each individually, were to be read in all of the churches. Now, one thing to take note of, there were not just seven churches in that area of Turkey or Asia Minor. There were many, many other churches. In fact, we could probably identify 50 to 60 churches just in the New Testament alone that had been established. But for whatever reason, these seven particular churches, all seven of the letters were to be read to all of the churches. And it is inclusive to not only those seven, which would be the panoramic, but really to all of the churches across that era and that time and across all of the church history or the epoch of the church, which includes us. 
So these seven letters very specifically apply each one of them to our fellowship. And Jesus is saying something to each, in terms of each of the churches, he is saying something very specifically and very poignantly. And he gives instruction how to respond to what he points out. Okay. Then finally, well, not finally, then also panoramically, then we go to personally, the application. What is it saying to me? Another theological term we use there is homiletically. How is that applied? What is it saying to me? What is it saying to me? And so we want to look at how the Word of God applies to our own personal lives. And then finally, this view is not held by all theologians. In fact, I would say it's probably held by maybe even less than half of the theologians uh, over the decades of time and the centuries of time. But it is that these seem to have a prophetic nature associated with them. And now that we're able to look back over the history of the church, we can see very, very clearly that each of these letters seem to represent an epic of church history. So for John on the island of Patmos, when he received it, everything was prophetic. For you and I living in the 21st century, looking back, the majority of it is historic. Does that make sense? Okay, but we are presently, if this is the case, we are presently living in the seventh letter or the seventh epic of church history, which is the church or the letter written to the messenger of the church of Laodicea. And so there's some very interesting things in relationship to the church of Laodicea that will be very applicable for us individually and collectively. Uh, so we'll get to that when we get there. After that, we see chapter 4 starts with after these things. The question should be, after what things? After the epics of church history. When the church history is complete, the church will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, I believe. And we see chapter 4 opens up with a meditation after these things. John hears a voice like a trumpet, and a window opens in heaven. A voice says, come up here. And the Bible says, instantly, John was in the spirit. And he was in the throne room of God, where the sevenfold spirit of God is. So suddenly we see that the spirit of God is also now in heaven. And John, as a representation of the church, is now in heaven. And so many theologians would hold that that is a picture of the rapture of the church. And then the church is seen in heaven in chapters 4 and 5. Chapters 6 through 19, we get a picture of... John sees in a vision and is literally taken there, projected into the future to the day of the Lord. And he sees Daniel's 70th seven or the 70th week declared for Jerusalem, the holy city and God's people, the Israelites. And there is what is known as Daniel's 70th week. Lots of activity that happens in the midst of that week, but in the middle of that week, there's something known as the abomination that causes desolation, and the last three and a half years is known as the Great Tribulation. Okay, then you get to chapter 20, and there's the millennial reign of Christ. Satan is bound for a thousand years. We get to chapters uh, 21, there's the Great White Throne Judgment, ultimately, and then we live happily there. So that's the book of Revelation in about three minutes. Okay, uh, so we're going to dive in. Uh, we got we got fairly far last week uh, into chapter two. We, I think we made four verses. <laughs> uh, so again, by way of reminder, one other piece that I would want to just remind you, uh, there is a allusion in chapter one, verses four through six, uh, of the Trinity, of the Trinity. And I think that's significant. We see him who uh, was, who is, and who is to come. That's the Father. Then we see the seven spirits of God. Most theologians would hold, myself included, would hold this as the sevenfold plentitude of God the Spirit. We looked at Isaiah chapter 11 uh, previously, where those seven 
fold spirit is uh, revealed, Isaiah chapter 11. And then we see Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from amongst the dead. Uh, so we have this allusion, if you will, to the Trinity. Because there are many people today, and many Christians today, when asked why we believe what we believe. Why we believe. Why do you believe that God has revealed himself in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? We want to be able to give the answer, this is why I believe that, because the Word of God teaches it. I don't necessarily understand it, but because the Word of God teaches it, that's why I believe it. Does that make sense? And so here in Revelation chapter 1, uh, verses 4, 5, uh, and 6, really verses 4 and 5, we see the Trinity identified. Another place that we would find the Trinity identified. Remember when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist in the River Jordan, as he came up out of the water, Jesus physically came up out of the water, so the Son, the second person of the Trinity, is physically on the earth, comes up out of the water, and the Bible says that the Spirit of God descended upon him as a dove, and the voice of the Father was heard from heaven. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So we see, again, three distinct persons, and we know that Isaiah 44, chapter, or chapter 44, verse 6 says, there is one God, there is none besides me. So one God, three persons. So, again, we, not, we may not be able to understand it fully, but for us to know that God has manifest himself and revealed himself in these three persons is important. There are theologies, you may or may not be aware, there are theologies that are very prevalent in the church today. One of which is known as oneness gospel or oneness theology. And that, that theology is there's only one God and there's only one person of that God, but at different times he manifested himself as the Father. At another time he manifested himself as the Son. And at another time he manifests himself as the Spirit. That could create all kinds of deception. And so we want to cling very closely to the word of God and be able to identify false doctrine, false teaching when it comes out. So knowing the word of God, being a student of. So when I see those things, I make note of it. I think, hey, that's important. I'm going to have that underlined and I can refer back to Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6. And remember, there's only one God and he revealed himself in these three distinct persons. So, uh, Okay, so we left off. We talked about... Uh, the church of Ephesus chapter 2 and again these seven letters uh, there are seven parts it seems in each of these letters so by way of reminder there is an address that is given to each church to the angel of the church of and then he'll give the name of the church so the address is simply addressing the angel or the messenger of a particular church. And so I always mention that there's an appellation as well. The appellation is simply a name. And the name is significant. The name of the church is significant. We saw last week, and we'll look at it very specifically again this week, that Ephesus means desired one. Desired one. Darling. My darling. Think about that for just a moment again. God views you and I as his desired one. God desires us. How epic is that? That is just absolutely fascinating. Of all of the things that God could desire, God desires me. God desires you. And here's the reality. You know you. You know you. I know me. And I know this old boy. Not very desirable. There's things about me that I don't even like. And yet God overlooks and he says, no, I love you. And he places a value on each one of us. The value that God places on each one of us is himself. For God so loved the world that he won. He gave his only begotten son. God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died a death that we deserve. So praise be to God. Uh, so we see the uh, the name. Then we see the uh, what I would call the adumbration. And adumbration is just a fancy word for partial revelation. A partial revelation of 
Jesus. And the partial revelation is just a part of what John turned to see the voice, and he gives this description. And now Jesus, in his addressing the church, he's going to give a partial revelation. That partial revelation ties in very closely with the one or with the name that is represented by the church. So if you look in Ephesians chapter 1, it says, to the angel of the church, verse 1 of chapter 2, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the golden lampstands. The seven golden lampstands. Here's a picture. Not only does he have the messengers in his hand, but you would remember, I believe it's John chapter 10, where he says, none that you have given me have I lost. No one can snatch them out of my hands. Where really is the church? The church is in Jesus' grip, right? And so Jesus is addressing the church of Ephesus, his darling, saying, I'm holding on to you. I'm holding on to you. How good for us to know that God is holding on to us. Sometimes we feel like, I'm hanging on, God, I'm hanging on. He says, well, don't worry, I got you. I got you. And he really does. The scripture reminds us in the book of Psalms that God's everlasting arms are beneath us, right? His everlasting arms, and they are upholding and sustaining us. So how, how epic is that? Uh, he says, these things, uh, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks amidst the seven golden lampstands. Where is Jesus? Where is Jesus? Well, we know he's sitting on the right hand of the Father, but where else is he? He's right here. He's, he's here. Where two or three are gathered in his name, he said, there I am also. We gathered in his name tonight. Jesus is here. Here's the amazing thing. Whether we acknowledge it or not, Jesus is here. Jesus is here. We sing a song, uh, let us become more aware of your presence, Lord. Let us become more aware of your presence. You know what's amazing? The presence of God, the presence of Jesus Christ, every single person here who's born again, and I'm looking across the room and I'm trusting that everybody here has already received Christ as the Lord and Savior. And if you haven't, hey, join <laughs> Simply receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. Be, have your sin forgiven. But Jesus is in everyone who's here. The presence of God is here. And that's powerful. And the thing is, we get to see Jesus in each other. Jan, I see Jesus in you. That's rich. I can't wait to see Jan. I can't wait to see all of you. Josh, Jesus is in you. Kimmy, Jesus is in you. Joanne, Jesus is in God. I mean, that's, look at your neighbor. Man, we, we but need to begin to see Christ in one another. Because really, it's Christ in us, the hope of glory. And so we get that. That's so exciting. Jesus is with us. He's in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And verse 20 of chapter 1 tells us what those seven golden lampstands are. They're the churches. The churches. And Jesus is here. So cool. Okay. Uh, he says, again, by way of reminder, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested uh, those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them to be liars. And you have persevered, and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Powerful words, powerful uh, these, this would be the affirmation. So we have the address, we've had the adumbration, and this would be the affirmation. Jesus is going to affirm. Here's the nice thing. We can hear the affirmations from the Lord. When these things are applied in our lives. Now, you could take a personal test, and I would encourage you to do so. Take a personal test. On a scale of 1 to 10. Because Jesus knows our works, right? Jesus knows our individual works. How are your works in relationship to the Lord on a scale of 1 to 10? You could just say, you know, I'm about to put it on there. Then you could come to uh, your labor. Are you industrious for the kingdom of God? Or are you industrious for your own kingdom? 
put yourself on that scale somewhere. Here's the tendency. Let me just tell you something about the churches, by the way. This is just by way of reminder, too. The churches that thought they were doing good, they weren't doing so good. The churches that didn't think they were doing good, they were actually doing pretty good. I think there's a warning there for us. Our tendency is to give self a whole lot more grace, and we think we're doing good, when in all reality, we really need to have the Spirit of God touching base. Yes. Oh, you're hallelujah. Amen. Amen. And so, let's be mindful that way. Right? So we could take that personal test. Again, the labor. How's your patience? Hmm. (laughs) How's your forbearance when it comes to evil? Forbearance when it comes to evil. What's that? I did. (laughs) Thank you, Ron. When I think about forbearance of evil, how do I do What do I allow in my house? What movies come into my home? How's your forbearance of evil? I remember when my kids were little, little guys, we were so fast on changing the channel. If something came on, like a commercial came on that was inappropriate, you know, just changing the channel as quickly as possible. In fact, it got to the point in our house, we had two shows that we could watch. Maya the Bee, a German cartoon about bugs, and Thomas the Tank Engine. That was the only TV that was ever on in our house. So that's what my kids grew up with. They could still sing the song of Thomas the Tank Engine. Anyway, we've graduated. Who changed? God didn't change. Somehow I did. And there was an allowance. And so when I even scale myself, I think, Lord, uh, there's work. There's work. So, we have verses 2 and 3 speaking very specifically to us. How am I doing? Then we get to verse 4 and he says, Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. And so this is kind of where we we, uh, finished last week. You've left your first love. They hadn't lost it, they left it. Remember, they had they were doing things for the Lord's sake, the Lord's namesake, but they had left their first love. They had left their first love. And it's interesting. It's only been between 30 and 40 years from the time that the church was founded. And Jesus' instruction, now this is not the pastor. This is not, uh, you know, a dear saint in the Lord. This is Jesus. Jesus. Jesus says, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. So he says, Remember therefore where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works. Well, let's hold our finger for a moment in Revelation chapter 2. With the idea of doing the first works. Let's just turn to Acts chapter 19. And we won't stay here very long and I won't read the whole chapter. Albeit I'd probably like to. But uh, Acts chapter 19. What happened to this church? What were their first works? There's some fascinating things that we can discover just looking at when the church was founded. We see in Acts chapter 19 it says... Just beginning in the very first verse, it says, And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus, and finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into then what were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. So Paul said, John indeed baptized with a water or a baptism of repentance. Underline that. They were baptized into a baptism of repentance. That means they had the deeds of repentance. That was one of the first things that they had. They had deeds of repentance. That's important for us. 
Because sometimes we get so familiar with how, we, how we're living that we forget about repentance of sin. Okay? So they had repentance. And then he goes on, he says, uh, John indeed baptized, verse 4, uh, with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who came after him, that is on Christ. Listen, they believed Christ. They believed the word of God. So they had repentance and they had belief. Have you begun to waver in your belief in the promises of God? Go and do first things. Believe, believe, believe. Okay. Then he goes on, he says, When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And Paul laid hands on them. The Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. The Spirit of God filled them. They were baptized in the Holy Ghost. They were filled and endued with power from on high. And with the power of God the Spirit in them, they spoke in tongues and they prophesied. They were exercising spiritual gifts. They were exercising ministries of the Lord. And they were seeing the operations of God. Now, I'll tell you, that's powerful stuff. That's what the church was engaged in. Now, it goes a little further. It says, there were only about 12 guys. There are only about 12 of them. That's pretty cool to me. They're having church and there's 12 people. Now, think about it today, right? I mean, I already told you today, wow, we have about 400 to 450. As if numbers somehow demonstrated something that God was there. No, you know what demonstrates when God is there? Number one, when there's love. And when we see this kind of stuff happening in people's lives. The power of God to transform a life. That's that's one of the greatest miracles. And these 12 were gathering together. They were listening to the teaching of Paul the Apostle. And things were happening. So they were repenting and they were believing the word of God. And they were seeing the operations of God. They were seeing the manifestation of those ministries of the Lord. And certainly the gifts of the Spirit. Okay, then it goes, I won't read all this. But it goes down a little bit further. And it says, verse 8, it says, And Paul, he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some of the people were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew and withdrew the disciples. So they stopped going to the synagogue. And what did they do? Reasoned daily in the school of Tyrrhenius. Now here's, here's something very interesting. This culture back then, in this area of Asia Minor, they practiced what you and I would know as fiesta. Is that right? Siesta. Siesta. Y'all know what a siesta is? You work in the morning, you get some lunch, and you take a rest for like four hours, and then you go back to work from 5 o'clock till 9 o'clock. That's what that, that was their culture. That's what they did. They didn't call it a siesta, right? But they, they took time off. But these guys, during that time, they went to a place called the School of Tyrannias every single day and they studied the Word of God. Think about that for a minute. Jesus reminded them, go and do the first things. They had a preeminence in the studying of the Scripture. They made that a preeminent thing. And it did something to them on the inside. They were passionate for the Lord early on. Passionate for the Lord. Passionate for the Word of God. Passionate for worship. Passionate for evangelism. They, I mean, let's face it, they were going into the synagogue and they were reasoning from the Scriptures regarding Jesus. And now... Forty years later, they left their first love. Oh, they were still doing stuff, but the emotion, the heart had gone. And he said, go and do those first things. And they studied the scriptures daily. Now, did they study it the entire four hours? My suspicion is yes. My suspicion is yes. We don't get, we don't get that commentary in here. Here's another thing. You can look at it. Look at verse 17. This became known 
both to all Jews and Greeks, and there was a, there was a problem with some uh, some guys who were kind of pretending their faith, and they wanted to cast out a demon in the name of Paul, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, and the demon spoke and said, "Hey, Jesus, I know Paul, I know, but who are you?" And so the demon. The demonized man leaped on these seven sons of Sceva, and he beat them up and, you know, basically stripped their clothing, and they ran out of the house, beat up and naked and bleeding, the Bible says. And so this became well known both to the Jews and the Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of Jesus was magnified. So the city, the city, was now hearing about all the marvelous works. How does the city become aware of marvelous works of God? How does the city hear? We got to tell it. You know what the early church did? You know what the early church in Ephesus did? They talked about the things of God. They talked about it. I will tell you one of the most thrilling things for me as a follower of Jesus is telling people who have not heard the story, telling them about Jesus. Man, have you heard about Jesus? Have you heard the story about Jesus? Gary, you told me about your neighbor. Can I share that real quick? Gary was out walking. His neighbor was out there. They got in a conversation, and Gary simply asked him, said, have you ever considered, uh, I'm probably messing it up, but have you ever considered being a follower of Christ, giving your heart to Jesus and his lordship in your life? The guy says, no, I haven't thought about that. Gary said, well, you ought to think about that. You ought to think about that. How long was it? Two days? Three days? Next day, they're loading him up in an emergency vehicle, taking him to the hospital. He says, I think about it when I get older. You know, the next day when they loaded him in the emergency vehicle, what do you think the Holy Spirit was reminding him? You're a little older today. <laughs> you ought to be thinking about it. But the joy... Of sharing Christ. Man, it's a it's a motivator. And it gives life. Because it's a life-giving message. Not only does it give life potentially to the one who's the receiver or the hearer, but the one who's doing the seed scattering. So exciting. It's just exciting. Anyway, all those things. So here's what this church was doing. So when he encourages them in relationship to you've left your first love, keep in mind who moved. God didn't move. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the church moved. They got so busy, busy, busy on doctrine and all this kind of stuff and the do-do-do, the duty... They lost the devotion. They had the motion, but not the emotion, right? Okay. So he says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. Think about where you were. I shared that on Sunday last week, my own personal life. And I tried to get out the words to the song in the second service. Because Mike was singing the song in between services. I'm like, oh, Psalm 40, I can hear you, man. I just, I'm singing it with you. John Morris played some of the music from the October album while we were tearing down. And I'm up here like talking to some people. I'm just like, I can hear the music in the background. I mean, it's, it's the thing that brought me back to my early days of betrothal. When I was just passionately in love with the Lord. And so when I feel a staleness in my relationship... I put in that album. I come right back to the book of Revelation. I read Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 3. That's the early days of passion. So, do those first things. Okay, let's keep going. And he says this. Uh, or else, verse 5, middle of verse 5. Or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Let me ask you the question. Have you ever heard of, in recent days, the church... Of Ephesus. The church of Ephesus that once was is no more. He says, I will remove, and the church ceased to exist in Ephesus because they didn't do what was instructed of them. I think there's a warning in them. I think there's a warning for every one of us as believers. We need to obey the Lord. I mean, it's that simple, right? That's not hard. That's not a reproof. That's, 
I mean, isn't it good? It is good. I mean, when God gives instruction, I mean, our flesh says, I don't want to do that. But if we would but heed what the Holy Spirit says, life, life, life. It's the little things, and the little things matter. Remember, the scripture tells us it's the little foxes that destroy the vine. So when the Holy Spirit is prompting you, is prompting us, we need to heed to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. The discerning, is this the Holy Spirit, is this me? Always remember, the Holy Spirit will never violate the Word of God. Never violate the Word of God. And He will always point you to Jesus. Does that make sense? So we can really discern oftentimes. Like if you're thinking, I'm not going to give up my ground in this argument. I'm going to hold my ground. Well, sometimes the Scripture even says at one point, why not rather be wrong? Why not just rather be wrong? Remove the fuel from the fire, and the fire goes out. So sometimes holding your ground, we think, well, it's the right thing. But again, remember, we're in a cooperative relationship with people, and we have to discover what, you know, love overlooks offenses, right? So we discover. Anyway, uh, you, you, you digest those thoughts, and as the Spirit of God leads you and prompts you, be sure to be faithful to listen to Him. He goes on to say this. He says, verse 6, but uh, this you have. So he's already given an accolade. Or excuse me, he's given the affirmation. He's given them the uh, antithesis, if you will. I have this against you. You've left your first love. And now he's given them an admonishment. Remember, therefore, what you, uh, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first words. Now he's also going to give just a simple accolade. Here's one more thing that you're doing really good. He says, in the way of an accolade, he says, But this you have. That you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Most people ask the question, what is, what are the deeds of the Nicolaitans? What, who are the Nicolaitans? Well, there are many thoughts associated with it. And where I probably land, again, it was probably, there was a guy named Nicholas who was a, uh, he was a Gnostic. And so there was a lot of things being taught. Number one, that Jesus was never here physically. Um, that it was, there was just an ethereal appearance, if you will, of the Son of God. But ultimately, I would hold that this word, being a compound Greek word, the two parts of the Greek word are niko or nike. Anybody know a shoe company in the Beaverton area, Hillsborough area, that might have that same word, Nike, associated with Nike? Same Greek word. And it means victor. Or triumphing over. Okay? So, Nico Laetans. Laetans. The Greek word there is has its definition in laity. What are the laity? The laity are the people. The people. And so, some theologians, myself, I would hold this view. Nicolaitans was a teaching of the Judaism infiltrating the church again, which they were trying to establish a priestly order back into the church. And that priestly order would be that those in rulership are now conquering over the laity and trying to establish a hierarchy. So the Jewish people under Judaism had to go to the priests who were mediators between God and the people. And so many believe that the teaching of the Nicolaitans was trying to establish this hierarchy where you needed a mediator between you and God. But the Bible tells us there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. So we have access to the very throne of God through Jesus Christ, who is, in fact, our high priest. In fact, if you look at the entire book of Hebrews, we would see that whole thing being played out. The Jews were, because of fear, shrinking back because they felt 
the persecution of not being a Jew if they were a follower of Jesus, but they thought, you know what, I could just get by. I'll just get by if I go to synagogue on the Sabbath. Or, uh, on the, yeah, on the Sabbath. And so some of the practicing Christians would go to the synagogue. Then they would participate in the synagogue, so they appeared to still be Jews, and privately they were being Christians. And the writer to the book of Hebrews is saying, stop, don't do that. It's impacting even your faith. And so that whole Judaism and that whole priestly order, and in all reality, we see it played out as you go down the line in church history. You see it in the Catholic Church? The hierarchy. So, if the teaching of the Nicolaitans is, in fact, as I just described, hear the words of Jesus. He says he hates it. He hates it. I, I tell people often, you, you don't need to call me Pastor Dave. Call me Dave. How's it going? <laughs> My name is Dave. My name is Dave. My book... And it's okay. You, if you want to call me Pastor Dave, I, I answer to it. <laughs> but the point I'm making is, I'm your brother. God's call on my life is vocational ministry. And as a minister of the gospel, God has called me to be a shepherd or a pastor. And so what I do in the kingdom of God is I am a pastor. Okay? But... I don't, I have a friend of mine whose name is Devin, and I don't, every time I see Devin, I'll say, hi, electrician Devin, you know, or hi, Apple software guy Mike, I mean, that's, hi, teacher Joanne, we, that, that's, does that seem awkward? That seems awkward. So, the idea in the kingdom of God, and in the church, we're all brothers and sisters, all in the same plane. Amen. Amen. None of this. Right? We get caught up in that sometimes. And I'm okay. Trust me. I'm okay with respect and all those proper things. I told my kids from a very early age, you call people who are older than you Mr. and Mrs. or Miss uh, and Mr. in terms of their, you know, with their surname, using their last names. And we'd have adult people say, oh, no, they just can call me this. And I say, no, no, they can't. <laughs> they need to call you by your last name because it's a respect thing. And I think that's, I, I get that. And so in many, in many settings, folks just feel more comfortable uh, with those, uh, those terms. The point is, we're brothers and sisters in the Lord. And we are co-heirs with Christ. We are co-heirs with Christ. We have one head. His name is Jesus. And we all are on assignment underneath him. Does that make sense? That's exciting. That's good stuff. Okay. Uh, so this teaching of the Nicolaitans. And then he goes on, verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. And this would be the assurance that comes kind of with a promise, if you will. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says, present tense, says to the churches... To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. He who has an ear. How many of us have ears tonight? All right. Let us hear what the Spirit is saying or says to the church. So when we read this, he's assuring us, he's giving us a promise to him who overcomes. And how do we become overcomers? By listening to the Spirit of God. By spending time in the Word of God and allowing the Spirit to speak to us. Okay, any thoughts or questions in relationship to the Church of Ephesus? The desired one. If, if uh, Ephesus were going by the dispensation. Yeah. Good question. I know where you're going. <laughs> so the question, if I can finish it. The church is lost. Okay, so in a nutshell, when we looked at the four applications, the fourth being prophetic, what was the epic of church history that the church of Ephesus represented? Does that make sense? Does that, does that seem like a reasonable question? So those, and so the term there is the dispensation, okay? W what is that dispensation and when did it end? 
So most theologians would hold that the, the period of the Ephesus church in the epics of church history would be from about 33 AD to about 100 AD. Okay? Some would hold from 70 AD on up to 170 AD. It fluctuates a little bit. But very interestingly, when we get into Smyrna, which is the next period, there is a reference to 10 days of 10 days of suffering, if you will. And some would hold, and I would probably be one that would hold this, that those 10 days are very specifically referring to 10 periods of persecution under 10 Roman emperors. Okay? Some would hold that it really is uh, 10 years of the last of the Roman emperors before Constantine, which was uh, Diocletian or Diocletian. And Diocletian was clearly one of the most severe, and his 10-year reign was devastating uh, in terms of that. But uh, so that period of time, uh, about uh, up to about 100, maybe 110, fluctuating. Uh, so does that answer that question? And so what happened to that dispensation? It's it's history. It seemed to me like if you're taking the seven and spreading them out over its, its 2,000 years, it would seem like that one would have to be longer. Yeah, it could, and it could be. Again, uh, Clarence Larkin takes it up to about 170. Uh, I would probably hold right around 100, 110, uh, maybe even uh, 95 up into this period. But uh, So we'll hold, I would just simply, if you're keeping notes, I would say somewhere between 33 A.D. on up to somewhere between 100 and 170 A.D. That would be that time period for the Church of Ephesus. Well, let's dive into the Church of Smyrna. Uh, yes. Oh, do you have another question? Well, I just had a comment to make. Yes. I, am, I am really challenged about testing myself against mm. what in starting from the Church of Ephesus through all seven. Just to take that personally and each item check it off and see where do I stand. Right. Because I think that's going to be a... Let, might be a painful exercise. So you may not hear Sherry, but Sherry says she's Sherry says she's challenged with the application and the test, if you will, applying what we're reading to our personal lives and how am I doing in relationship to the things that are listed within these churches. Here's the here's the interesting thing. What's one thing that we do monthly as a fellowship? And we do it very consistently on the first Sunday of each month. We take communion. We receive communion. When we receive communion, we are reminded. In fact, the scripture reminds us not to receive the emblems in an unworthy manner. So we are to take spiritual stock of our lives. And in essence, this is taking spiritual stock. How am I doing it? Because in all reality, these seven letters, in a matter of speaking, they're report cards. They're report cards. And the church is receiving a report card, if you will, from the king, Jesus. And it's, hey, remember... When you were raising kids, if you were raising kids, or remember when you received your report card? I remember we used to get our report cards from the teacher, and we had to bring it home to our parents. Our parents had to sign it, and then we had to bring it back. How many of you had that practice? I remember practicing signing my dad's signature. Because I knew he can't see my report card. I'm going to be busted. But there's no getting away from it with Jesus. You there's no pretending. It's plain to him. He starts off with verse 2. He says, I know your works. Well, the psalmist said, where can I go? I, even in the depths of the sea, thou art there. There's no, there's no hiding. And so... Let's take spiritual stock, and when the Holy Spirit points his finger, boop, obey. I, as crazy as it sounds, it really is that simple. 
And yet, have you discovered when you want to obey, you find that it's not that simple? Why is it, why is it hard? I mean, let's face it, when things are sin, when it's sin, if we didn't somehow like sin, if we didn't somehow like sin, the devil would be out of job. But somehow we still have an affinity. You know, I look at Psalm 84, verse 2, and he says, he uses this phrase, Psalm 84, verse 2, I think I said this in the sermon this past Sunday, but the psalmist says, my soul longs for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh cry out for the living God. Well, I'm okay with the soul part. Man, my soul, I long for the courts of the Lord. My heart, it cries out for God. But my flesh, it cries out for me. That's, I mean, guy, how did he get there? So my prayer in taking spiritual stock, Lord, help me with integrity be able to make that declaration. My soul longs, my heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Oh, that my flesh would be converted. Well, conversion, listen, not by mind, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Not by mind, not by power, by my spirit, says the Lord. I can't do it in the flesh. That's what, you read the book of Galatians, read the entire book of Galatians, Galatians 3.3. Why would you try and finish in the flesh, that which was begun in the Spirit. We see in Acts chapter 19 what was begun by the Spirit of God. Here in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, they're trying to finish it in the flesh. I see it. Why do I practice it? Anybody here ever identify with the Apostle Paul when he says, the things I want to do, I do not do, but the things I don't want to do, that I do? Who will save me from this body of flesh? Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So victory is found in Christ, in Him. Here's another one that warps my mind. He says, but you have the mind of Christ. You have the mind of Christ. I'm like, I do? In Him, I do. Now i got to get there. How do I get there? Lord, the washing of the water of the word. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. I beseech you as the mercies of God that you would offer your lives as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to the Lord, for this is your reasonable service. It's your spiritual worship. He says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the what? The renewing of your and it's through the washing of the water of the Word of God. That's the Word of God. Does that make sense? Okay. Well, we still we got five minutes. Let's dive into Smyrna. Okay. Verse eight. And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write. So this is the address to the angel of the church of Smyrna. Smyrna. Prophetically, in that lineage of time or the dispensation of church epics, the Smyrna period would represent, and I would say it would overlap. I believe it comes from the time of Nero all the way up to Diocletian, which is about 310 AD. So there's a little bit of an overlap, if you will, of that day. It's not, a, it's not as clear as I would like to see it. However, I really believe the 10 days that we'll read about really does cover those 10 periods of persecution that the church faces under those Roman emperors. So it would include Nero. But I would, So for the sake of how we've done those numbers, 33 to 100, we'll say from 100 up to 310 or 312. Just call it 312. 312. 312 is when something very unique transpires and Constantine comes into power. And we'll see, we'll see that historically, what transpires, and his establishment of the state religion as being Christianity, and the marriage of paganism and Christianity. 
and some things that transpired. So we'll see that in a, in a, in a week or so. But uh, he says, to the angel of the church of Smyrna, the name Smyrna, Smyr, Myr. What do you hear there? Myr. What's Myr? Myr. Is, there's bitterness. What did you say? Smurfs. Smurfs. <laughs> Little blue guys with white hats. No. The root word there is myrrh. Myrrh is a, it's a, there's a bitterness in its definition. Myrrh is a seed. And the fragrance of the seed is released when the seed is crushed. You see the church in the Ephesus period as having left their first love. They are about to go through some bitter persecution as a result. And the Lord is drawing them back to himself. So they're about to get some squeezing and some crushing. Have you noticed in your life squeezing and crushing? What's coming out? The Bible talks about our lives as dispensing the fragrance of the Lord. I wonder sometimes when I'm under pressure and I'm being squeezed, if it's the fragrance of the Lord that's being released or if it's the reputation of my flesh that is released. Lord, transform me. Transform me. Right? That's that testing piece that Sherry was referring to. So, he goes on and he says, These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. The church of Smyrna was about to go through some heavy persecution. It's interesting that this adumbration, this partial revelation of the Lord, he says, the things... These things says the first and the last who was dead. There's going to be a tremendous amount of death during the Smyrna period. But I love the little piece after that says, and came to life. Came to life. Maybe you're here tonight and you feel like some of your crushing, some of your pressure, some of your difficulties in life has brought some levels of death. Maybe you felt like you left your first love. Maybe you thought you lost your first love, but now you realize maybe that you've just left your first love. Or some of that passion is gone and you feel dead on the inside. I just want you to know something. You may go through some persecution. You may go through some tribulation. The psalmist said, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, I obey your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I serve and obey you. It's interesting that he notes that that the affliction brought him back home. The affliction brought him home. Listen, doesn't the Lord chastise those he loves? Aren't we encouraged not to despise the chastising of the Lord? I've noticed in my life some of the chastising that I receive from the Lord is His silence. Have you noticed in your life how silence is painful? When God's not speaking to me, you know where I look? Right here. When I hear heaven being silent, I think, Lord, where am I wrong? What am I missing? Am I missing something? Because He chastises me by silence. So I'm always very encouraged. I feel in my time of study with the Lord, I get an unction from God and I feel this certain sense. I think, oh Lord, I feel so close to you because I hear you and you're saying these good things. And it's always that encouraging. But those times when I was like, Lord, where are you? Mm, who moved? Okay, Lord. Repentance, go and do those first things, right? Okay. Well, I want to keep going because I love this part. This is interesting. The, the, the period of Smyrna, again, going up to uh, about 310, 312 AD, uh, John, who is exiled on Patmos, when he is released from Patmos in 96 AD, when uh, 
that Roman Empire, or the Roman Emperor dies, he's released, and I think it's Tarjan that comes in and releases him. He has a disciple, and his disciple's name is Polycarp. How many of you have heard of the, it's known theologically as the Antonician father, and this is a, this is a first century disciple of John, Polycarp. Polycarp in, oh, I want to say probably established by John himself, was established as the bishop of Smyrna. And it is in Smyrna that Polycarp in 164 AD, he's about 86 years old at that time, he is, it is required of him to denounce Christ. And he would not denounce Christ. He said, for 86 years I have been faithful and he has been faithful to me. Could I now deny his name? And then he said, bring on the flames. Bring on the flames. And they burned him at the stake for his faith in Christ. Powerful. How could I now deny the one who was so faithful to me? Bring on the flames. The Bishop of Smyrna. Heavy persecution. And so we'll pick up uh, next week. We'll pick up in verse 8 in its totality. And we'll go, we'll probably try and cover uh, 8 uh, through 17 next week and cover these two church periods, uh, the Church of Smyrna and the Church of Pergamos. Um, let's pray and uh, we'll, be, we'll be dismissed. I know there's kids to be picked up. So, And I went long tonight. Father, we love you. Thank you for the word of God. It is liberating. We find true freedom in you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you love us, that you desire us. We are your darling. We are your desired one. Thank you that your Holy Spirit yearns for us jealously. Jealously because he wants us to walk in rightness in relationship with you so that we can be best positioned to receive all of you. And so we can be really blessed maximally. That's your heart's desire to bless your children. Lord, help us to realize that and to walk in that. So God be glorified, transform us. We love you, we praise you, and we thank you for the word of God. Be glorified now. In Jesus' name. And everyone said a strong amen. 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 All right. So Revelation chapter 2. We'll pick back up in verse 8. We'll we'll cruise over verse 8 and we'll get right into 9. And uh, we'll try and make it through uh, verse 17 next Sunday night. The Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and give you peace. God bless you.